Hello, I'm Aaron Lohr, and this is the Endocrine News Podcast. Today, we're talking about vitamin D insufficiency and COVID-19. I have two guests today, Dr. Laurel Mormon and Dr. Shweta Chakuri, both from Montefiore Health System in New York, and both authors of an abstract recently presented at Endo 2021. The abstract was titled, The Effect of Vitamin D Supplementation on Severe COVID-19 Outcomes in Patients with Vitamin D Insufficiency. Welcome, Drs. Mormon and Chakuri, and thank you for joining me today. Pleasure to be with you. Now, thank you for having us. So let's first talk about vitamin D. There are so many studies touting the benefits of vitamin D that it may lead one to believe it is a panacea of sorts. That may be wishful thinking, but surely vitamin D has its benefits. So please tell us a bit about the role of vitamin D and our overall health. To briefly review, vitamin D is a fat-soluble vitamin and the major natural source is dermal synthesis, so our skin. It is converted in the liver from 25-hydroxy vitamin D, the major form that's circulating, and that's the one that we measure, and it's further converted to 125-dihydroxy vitamin D in the kidney. So during this talk, when we refer to vitamin D, we're actually referring to 25-hydroxy vitamin D, and the endocrine society defines low vitamin D as less than 20, which is deficient, and 20 to 30, which is insufficient. So the vitamin D and its metabolites play such a significant role in our bone health. They determine our bone stage of growth. In young children, vitamin D deficiency can cause rickets. And in anyone old enough to have closed epiphyseal plates, deficiency causes osteomalacia. So insufficient vitamin D contributes to like osteoporosis, osteopenia, and it can cause muscle weakness. And this also increases risk for falls, which is typically for our older adults. Vitamin D also modulates the innate and adaptive immunity via vitamin D receptors on cells such as BNT antigen presenting epithelial cells. So it has anti-inflammatory properties, antioxidant properties, and these are all less well studied. But to answer your question, it's not the panacea of all your ills, but certainly an important vitamin vital to our body's overall good health. So it seems to me like vitamin D insufficiency is very, very prevalent. In fact, I got my physical recently, and when my blood work came back, everything was great, except that I had a vitamin D you know, insufficiency. And talking to my friends, they were all saying the same thing. So why is it so prevalent? Is, is it the weather? Is it what we're eating? What's going on? The amount of sun exposure that you get is the biggest player because natural sources of vitamin D in food are very rare. And so you don't really get it from your diet. And so you have to be exposed to sunlight. And so in our country, a lot of our population lives far above the equator. So there's less sunlight exposure from that. 
There's prolonged winter periods with very low sunlight exposures, people with darker skin, older age, higher BMIs, all of these things are associated with vitamin D deficiency. One other thing is as a nation, we have started supplementing our milk with vitamin D. Not started, but we've been doing it for a long period of time. As other forms of milk, such as soy milk and almond milk, get more popular, they're not supplemented with vitamin D. So that source that was added into our diet to combat vitamin D deficiency is no longer being consumed by a large portion of the population. So to your point about the weather, there's one study out there that shows that a brief casual exposure of sun to your arms and face is equivalent to about 200 international units of vitamin D per day. So having said that, it's like difficult to predict the length of daylight exposure that is required to obtain like a sufficient amount of vitamin D per day in your body or to convert. So what we do know is that in the winter months, you tend to be more deficient and you also tend to be more deficient when you're in countries with less amount of sun. So the Northern hemisphere, Canada, and I'm not specifically ruling Canada in, but I'm just saying Northern countries in general. So there's a lot going on with vitamin D. In your Endo 2021 presentation, you specifically examined vitamin D supplementation on patients with COVID-19. So why did you want to study this population specifically? Well, we wanted to study this population for several reasons. First, vitamin D deficiency is so common. By some estimates, we expect that half our population has insufficient vitamin D levels. And deficiency increases with age, BMI, decreased exposure to light, winter months basically, or farther away from the equator, <laughs> and darker skin. So we know that supplementation is inexpensive, readily available, and well-studied and well-tolerated. There's also evidence that sufficient vitamin D protects against viral respiratory illnesses such as RSV, and influenza. So in ICU patients who are admitted with lower respiratory tract infections, patients with insufficient vitamin D levels are usually tend to stay, have a longer length of stay and increased risk of sepsis and death. Um, but most of these trials are observational and physicians have already started treating COVID-19 patients with vitamin D supplementation because of these known associations with other viral infections. So we just wanted to take a closer look and see what the effect of the supplementation in those patients who received supplementation prior to the hospitalization, if it really made a difference in their outcomes. It sounds like some physicians have already been using vitamin D supplementation to help prevent or halt the progression of COVID-19, even though there hasn't really been a lot of direct evidence to show that. Is there a reason why they were doing this? The link between vitamin D and the respiratory viral infections is very intriguing. There is a lot of suggestive data that vitamin D influences the immune system and specifically the respiratory viral infections. But unfortunately, most of these trials are looking at outcomes that are observational. And the few randomized controlled trials of supplementation are not that convincing. But the idea that a therapy that we're already familiar with and know to be correct, that of supplementing vitamin D for patients who are deficient is a good idea, it's appealing to a lot of people. 
the potential benefit is large and the downside is so minimal. So why not give it a shot? What did you and your colleagues do to determine the impact of vitamin D supplementation on the vitamin D insufficient patients with COVID-19? In our study, we looked at all patients admitted to Montefiore Medical Center, which is an academic medical center in the Bronx, New York, between March 11, 2020 and June 2, 2020. We selected any patient who had a vitamin D level, and remember this is the 25-hydroxy vitamin D, checked within 90 days prior to hospital admission. We classified patients as having received supplementation if they were ordered for any formulation of vitamin D equaling 1,000 units weekly were not supplemented if they had either received less than 1,000 units per week or if they were not ordered for supplementation at all. Our outcome of interest was severe COVID-19 disease, which we defined as need for mechanical ventilation or death during admission. We then compared the odds of having a severe COVID-19 disease by supplementation status in anyone with a vitamin D level less than 30. As a sensitivity analysis, we also performed this for those patients with a pre-admission vitamin D level less than 20, and a second sensitivity analysis comparing patients receiving greater than 5,000 units weekly versus no supplementation. And what did you find? We found a total of 124 patients with pre-admission vitamin D levels. Only about half of them were supplemented with greater than 1,000 units per week of vitamin D. 73 of those, so about 60%, were insufficient. And again, that means levels of 20 to 30, and 51 of those were deficient, so less than 20. There weren't any significant differences between the groups who were supplemented versus not supplemented, although the not supplemented group tended to be a little bit older, 64 years of age versus 60. We found a trend that vitamin D supplementation prior to admission for COVID-19 is associated with lower odds of severe COVID-19 outcomes in both supplementation groups only about 20% of those supplemented had severe outcomes compared to about 40% of those who were not supplemented. However, this association was not significant. In our deficient group, the odds of severe COVID-19 outcomes were even lower, but again, not statistically significant. So moving forward, when you think about what your study looked at and what you found, do you think that this research or future research that might be coming down the pike are going to impact the treatment of patients with COVID-19, especially since so many of them are probably going to have vitamin D insufficiency or straight-up deficiency? Unfortunately, our sample size was very small and we didn't reach statistical significance. However, it doesn't diminish that almost half of the patients who should have been supplemented with vitamin D were not. The trend towards lower odds of severe COVID-19 outcomes fits with prior literature on vitamin D and viral respiratory tract infections, as well as emerging literature looking specifically at vitamin D in COVID-19 infections. We think this topic deserves more research to better understand the relationship between vitamin D supplementation and COVID-19 infections. It sounds like there's still some challenges with ensuring that those who need vitamin D supplementation are getting it. Is it true that these challenges exist? One of our research group people is working in QI, and this is a topic that she's noticed across other bits of research. We're doing another project on zinc. And what we find is that physicians are really bad at reacting to certain numbers. And some of those numbers are supplementation. So we know that people who have low vitamin D don't get supplemented when they should. People who have low zinc levels don't get supplemented when they should. 
And this is all from data within institutions, like specifically for hospitalized patients. And so you can see exactly what they're getting. And it's just this trend that we don't tend to react to these numbers as much as we should. This has been a, a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate the two of you coming on the podcast and sharing your research with us. Um, thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Thank you. That's all for this episode. As always, thank you for listening to the Endocrine News Podcast. If you'd like to hear more of these, check us out on endocrine.org slash podcast or Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying these, please let us know by leaving a review on Apple. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email at podcast at endocrine.org. Thanks again. Endocrine News Podcasts are a free service of the Endocrine Society. To learn more or to become a member, visit the Society's website at www.endocrine.org.